Hello and welcome to Medical Matters episode five. I'm Kendall. I'm Sunil. And we are first year medical students at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. And today is an exciting episode because we are joined by a third year medical student, Megan. Hello, welcome. Hi, my name is Megan Rusigno. I am a third year medical student here at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. Thank you for joining us, Megan. So uh, how is everything going with you and third year? It's busy. It's busy. It's hard because you go from times where you're, you know, you can watch a lot of Netflix to <laughs> times when you're constantly overscheduling yourself. Yeah. So like uh, all these, all these most recent rotations, how have they, how have they been holding up, um, you know, with COVID and everything? Have they been much different? Have they still been good experiences? How's it been for you? It's hard to say because I don't really have much to compare it to other than kind of limited clinical exposure in first and second year. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our clerkships have been shortened. And for a while, we weren't seeing COVID patients. And, you know, we were wearing two, th- two masks to pretty much everything. Um, it was hard at the beginning, too, because testing wasn't very fast. So we would incidentally have a COVID patient and then have to quarantine for two weeks, technically, oh my gosh. or get tested all the time. Um, but I think, you know, that's settled down quite a bit with the vaccinations and that pretty much most people in hospitals are now vaccinated so it's less of a problem Um, but I think yeah for the most part I don't know if it's changed all that much they've really tried to keep the the main curriculum set just shortened a little bit yeah I'm glad that you guys had rotations since I want to say the fourth years right they didn't have it this past year did they, they or they, they didn't have their away rotations they had very limited away rotations and then they also at the end of last year towards may uh april may june had a time when they were paused on clinical rotations oh, okay. um, and doing a lot of virtual rotations which was brand new to everybody do you know what a virtual rotation even entails just curious i know that you haven't so really done a lot of them but... are they well I've, I've read a little bit about them and a lot of them um seem to be just clinical instruction almost where you're going through seems almost in a classroom but I'm sure they're more interactive than I imagine um there was one at I think Yale I was looking into where they they go through EKGs and they go through like almost a practice oral boards exam Mm. um, and go through different patient scenarios and so that seems seems interesting Mm, it's it's different for sure but you know what you do you do we have to Absolutely. I mean, I, I guess I hope that, you know, they're making the most of it. Places like Yale, I'm sure they have enough resources to, you know, stick a GoPro on each attending's forehead and, you know, <laughs> follow them around. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Just modern medicine that way? That's, that's crazy. Could be the way we're headed. I mean, who knows, right? Um, okay, well, very nice. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode because our topic today is addiction. We have an addiction medicine specialist coming on. Um, and I know you mentioned that you uh, had worked with her in the past. Um, so I guess, you know, what, what motivated you um, to, you know, to kind of study, to do research within this field um, as well? You see addiction in so many, pa- so many patients have problems with substance abuse. And you might not even recognize it initially. Um, and some can say, well, you know, she's fellowship trained, she's a specialist. And that's, that's great. But also, addiction medicine is virtually in every single field. So that's it, it incorporates every single field because you don't you need to know if your patient has has medical if their medical problems are associated with with substance abuse. And a lot of times that happens, or psychiatric manifestations that end up occurring, co-occurring. 
Um, so I think why I ended up studying it and doing research projects in it was because one, it's so prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, two, I wanted to specifically look at the pediatric population and see if we could have early interventions um, with high school health classes um, and see if we can one, answer some of their questions because they do have a lot of questions and two, um, just talk about the commonality and kind of destigmatize it just because people don't seek treatment a lot of times because of the stigmatization of of it. So today we are fortunate to have Dr. Rika Danko with us. Dr. Danko is an alumnus from our very own university graduating in 2008. She specializes in internal medicine and is board certified in both internal medicine and addiction medicine. In 2015, Dr. Danko served as the Chief Medical Officer of Northern Nevada Hopes, a nonprofit community health organization, um, through which she developed an outpatient addiction treatment program to help those with substance use disorders. She was board certified in addiction medicine in 2017. Through her work, Dr. Danko has increased education, prevention, and treatment options in our community. Welcome, Dr. Danko, to the podcast. Thank you so much. I am so fortunate to be here and so honored that you guys asked me to be here to talk about addiction and addiction medicine, because I think it's such an important topic and really needs so much more awareness and so much more compassion than what we have right now. Absolutely. I think, yeah, like, like you mentioned, it's such a stigmatized, such an under, um, you know, such an undervalued aspect of, of medical education, of, um, you know, of, of medicine in general, I feel like we, you know, we treat people with addiction as if they have a mental illness. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a uh, or they, they, sorry, we treat addiction as if it was a crime as opposed to, um, you know, an actual disorder. So it's important that, you know, we get the chance, you know, to, to correct that, at least to try to correct that today. Um, so to start off, I just wanted to ask, you know, what motivated you, like what got you into um, addiction medicine in the first place? Yes, thank you so much. I have had such an interesting path in arriving where I am today. And I, as you mentioned, I went to medical school in Reno, Nevada, and was so fortunate and really enjoyed the experience. I graduated there in 2008 and went on to do an internal medicine residency and became board certified in internal medicine in 2011. And then a couple of years after that, in 2013, one of my mentors from my internal medicine residency asked me if I would help out a community health center called Northern Nevada Hopes. So I went there and in 2015, I was asked to essentially start a treatment program for youth offenders who were incarcerated through the criminal justice program. And they were constantly being reincarcerated. And the criminal justice system reached out and asked if they could find a collaborative medical team that would treat the addiction and help these young adults so that they wouldn't be stuck in this criminal justice cycle. So I had the opportunity to start that program. And to be completely honest with you, I didn't really know anything about addiction at that time. I didn't have personal experience with it. I didn't have family experience with it. And so I learned addiction from the patients who I was fortunate enough to see. And I think that has given me such a profound respect because I didn't learn it from books and I didn't learn it from from a curriculum. I really learned it from people who understood exactly how addiction worked. And so I worked with mentors from primarily from the East Coast who were running similar 
medical programs. And we were able to really successfully help these patients. And, and furthermore, basically support exactly what you said, that treating addiction as a crime or even the, the notion that we can punish people out of addiction is so false because addiction is absolutely a medical problem and a very worthy medical problem for our time and our expertise and for giving people who have addiction compassion and treatment. And so I was fortunate to continue running that program until I achieved board certification. And now I am an advocate for, like you said, programs and development and education for those who are going into medicine and all aspects of medicine to understand that addiction really deserves our time and our compassion. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like you're hinting about the stigma behind addiction medicine and uh, there's kind of a delineation between the term substance use versus substance abuse. Could you speak to how those terms are used in your practice and what they really imply? Absolutely. Yes. I think that in general, when we talk about addiction, we have so much stigma and we do have so much shame associated with that. And patients have described to me that they feel unwelcomed in our medical community, that they feel unwelcomed in the community as a whole, that they feel that they're not doing well enough or trying hard enough. And really it's our due diligence to be able to reverse that and change our mindset about how we view addiction and how we view people who suffer with addiction. And one of my favorite quotes, this is a quote from 2016 from the United States Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy, who's actually the Surgeon General again now. And his quote in 2016 was, we have to stop treating addiction as a moral failing and start seeing it for what it is, a chronic disease that must be treated with urgency and compassion. And I think that to echo that, we really have to think about how we promote that stigma or how we can get rid of that stigma. And, and part of that, yes, would be using the right terminology. For example, many times I see abuse listed, whereas we could use the actual DSM-5 definitions, which are substance use disorders, like alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder. Those tend to be more of the, the clinically appropriate terms, but even more so than, than being worried about terminology, I think is, is our due diligence to worry about our behavior and how we treat people with addiction. Because when people come into the hospital, for example, which is where I practice, they say, well, I don't want to talk about this because even the way that the questions are asked of them it already feels judgmental. Well, you don't drink, do you? Well, you don't smoke, do you? Well, aren't you, aren't you gonna quit? You do know that if you, if you quit, this will go away. And those are, those are accusatory ways to approach discussions about addiction rather than approaching it with curiosity and basically an open mind. You don't have to be an addiction expert to help somebody who's struggling with addiction. Really what you need to have is an open mind to say, Tell me what it is that you struggle with. Tell me what it is about this substance that drives you to want to use it. Tell me what you've tried to stop before. Very similarly to how we would 
investigate or ask a patient about diabetes medications or about how they struggle with pain or how a patient struggles with, with asthma and treating asthma. So if we can get rid of not, not even necessarily just the language barriers with it, but if we can get rid of our judgment towards asking questions and ask with an open mind and an open heart, then I think we can really start to make progress. Thank you for that. That was a fantastic uh, perspective from that. And especially, you know, I see that a lot in third year, exactly what you're saying, how things are approached and how different substance use is approached rather than diabetes or hypertension. Um, it, it's, it's very, there's a big contrast between it. Um, so with that in mind, medicine's, you know, very interdisciplinary. So how do we establish an interdisciplinary approach to addiction medicine, incorporating different subspecialties and careers within medicine? You know, I think part of it starts with education and again, approaching people with an open mind to say, let's look at things differently. Just because we have this old school thought about how addiction is or was, or just because we used to use punishment houses thinking that that was going to cure people of alcohol use disorder, or just because people are incarcerated when they have illegal dealings with drugs doesn't mean that that's the right way to do it. And I think part of it is coming to the table, for example, with a podcast like this, or with continuing educations, or really anything that we can do to bring awareness to the problem, and really start to come to the table together to see how can we change things? How can we make this different? You know, when you mention that we can treat addiction, similarly to other medical conditions like diabetes and hypertension or high blood pressure, then I immediately think about uh, there was a study in JAMA in the year 2000 that actually linked relapse rates and studied the, difference re the different relapse rates between those that were taking medicines for asthma, those that were taking medicines for high blood pressure, and those that were, that were struggling with addiction to substances. And what that study found decades ago was that the relapse rates were exactly the same, which really speaks to the humanness of addiction and the humanness of disease in general, even outside of addiction, that really None of us are perfect in complying with a diet or complying with all of the medications as prescribed, exactly as prescribed. None of us are perfect at exercising every day. We can do the best we can, but really we're human in our nature of, of that. And relapse rates are a struggle every day for everybody, regardless of that disease process. And I think that if we continue to educate across the board to say, how can we meet people where they're at? regardless of whether we're talking about somebody with struggles of addiction or whether we talk about somebody who's struggling to control diabetes or struggling with heart disease, the, the conversation is the same. It comes down to compassion. It comes down to the model of, of harm reduction saying, how can we meet you where you are to find you the help we need? And again, I have to highlight, you don't have to be an expert to really get somebody help. I wasn't an expert in addiction medicine when I started interviewing people saying, I don't even know what that drug is. Can you tell me about that and why you take it and what effects you get from that? And that's really how I learned about different substances and what those may have as an effect on that individual. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans with our flaws and imperfections. Um, and, you know, treating it 
as we do with these other, uh, you know, valid medical disorders, which um, addiction is, uh, you know, will only will only change the the conversation and change treatment plans in a more positive way, right? In a, in a way that does reflect um, that uh, it it is it is genuinely a medical issue. Um, but you know, that leads me to to thinking. There, there's actually been something racking my mind lately, which is, you know, in the first place. How how did we begin stigmatizing addiction? Like what, like what 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 is in our society that that led to that? Because you know, drug dealers are stigmatized for a very good reason; they're causing harm to people. But drug users are similarly stigmatized, right? People who are addicted to these substances. Why, why? Absolutely. Well, that's a really great question, and I I don't know that I know the exact answer to that. Other than I could say, there's definitely a lot of stigma. There's definitely a lot of shame. And I think maybe it came down to not knowing enough about the science of addiction, possibly. But I know that probably around the 1930s, looking historically, we absolutely treated addiction as a character flaw or as a lack of willpower, so to speak, saying, well, if you continue to use a substance despite the harm that it's causing you, you must just be weak or you must be purposefully doing that to yourself. And I think that's where at that time, the treatment really was trying to center around, well, let's put you in a punishment house. And then when we eventually let you out, you will have learned your lesson from that punishment and you'll no longer be addicted to that substance or that behavior. Now we've realized that no amount of punishment can punish you out of addiction because it has nothing to do with character flaw and it has nothing to do with willpower. In fact, by punishing people who have addiction, it really actually creates more trauma and it creates more of a negative effect, a stress response, which then can perpetuate that addiction and actually make those cravings much more strong. So I think part of where we are in trying to get more and more information is that we're starting to understand the science, the neurobiology of addiction. So I'm happy to talk a little bit about that if that fits in as a good, as a good uh, next point to go, where we could talk a little bit about how we know about neurobiology now. Sure. I'd love to hear about that. Oh, wonderful. So, you know, one of the things that we, that we often hear about in addiction is the addiction circuit, the reward circuit. And the way that comes up is, well, we know there's dopamine. And if any of us right now listening to this, we can sort of close our eyes. And for a second, we can think about something that causes us pleasure, regardless of whether that is listening to your favorite podcast, or having your favorite dessert, eating your favorite flavor of ice cream, going on vacation, having a romance, whatever that is, when you think about something that is pleasurable to you, your brain naturally produces dopamine spikes. Dopamine is basically our feel-good neurotransmitter. So it helps us to say, oh, that feels good. That's something that I really like to think about. And what happens with dopamine is every time that we have something that feels good to us, or we think about something that feels good to us, we get more dopamine. Now, one of the things we know about drugs, and I say that as a broad term encompassing really any substance that we can put in that spikes dopamine, such as 
methamphetamines or other stimulants, opioids, alcohol, and it can also come from behaviors, something like uh, internet addiction. It doesn't have to be a substance we're putting in. It could also be a behavior that stimulates dopamine in the brain. Now, one of the things we know about the body's physiology is that when we have too much of something, eventually the body will compensate for that overwhelming surge. And one thing we know about drugs in general is people who have more predisposition to addiction tend to get surges of dopamine to the effect of about a hundred to probably a thousand times the strength of those natural rewards that, that I just mentioned, such as your favorite food, going on vacation, having a romance, listening to your favorite song. Those things create spikes of dopamine, but drugs create spikes of dopamines that are exponentially greater than our natural rewards. So when those spikes happen with these substances, it overwhelms that circuitry and the body has a response to say, okay, how do we get that again? And then eventually over time, when that circuitry continues to have so much dopamine, the body naturally reduces its ability to sense the dopamine because it's going to either make less dopamine or decrease the receptors. And those are the natural compensations that happen in our bodies when we have too much of anything. It's the body's physiology of saying, hey, we have too much of this. It must be wrong. We must do something about it. And when that occurs, then we start to be blunted. And we don't have the ability to experience pleasure from those natural rewards anymore. So things like going to my job or trying to fulfill my med school obligations or eating my favorite food or packing for a vacation to go somewhere I'm excited about no longer spike that do dopamine circuitry. So it really affects our ability to experience reward. And in addition to that, then you get the withdrawal effects. Because another thing that happens with drugs that are constantly coming into the body is it creates effects of tolerance, meaning the physiologic responses that happen, eventually you need more and more of that substance to achieve even the same or, or sometimes even less of an effect. And when you remove the substance, because there's now a physiologic dependence upon that stimulation of that substance, now you're going to have effects of things like withdrawal which is an, a negative feeling. It's a feeling of stress response because the body is trying to regain its normal state of equilibrium, which now it's used to having a certain amount of alcohol, a certain amount of methamphetamine, a certain amount of opioid in order to achieve that balance. So now you have a couple of different things spinning. You have an activated reward system that wants that dopamine you have a blunted dopamine response from too much drugs or too, too much stimulation. You have an increased response of negative effects with withdrawal and stress. And then you start to get into cravings and anticipation. So you have so many different brain areas involved. It's not just reward, but it really affects so many different brain chemistries that really tell us that not only are people with addiction normal, but this is actually a very normal, healthy cycle. And that's one of the things that I would always tell patients in the clinic is not only should you not feel judged or stigmatized or shameful, but you should celebrate your brain because this is a very normal response to what happens when you have overwhelming surges of dopamine.
And the good news at the end of that is that we can restructure the brain to where those dopamine pathways can again come back to normal. It just takes time and effort in that treatment process. Yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned the dopamine circuit. We actually just had a presentation from uh, Dr. Lemka from Stanford University. She was on the recent Netflix documentary called Social Network and has um, the same dopamine circuit, the reward circuit is prevalent in social media and how we can become dependent on social media, whether that be Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, but how abstaining from those can also lead to a dopamine deficit. And it's very similar, it sounds like, in the physiology of um, these substance use disorders. Absolutely. And that's why I say really addiction isn't just addiction to opioids or to alcohol. It can be addiction to so many different behaviors and so many different really objects that aren't even things that we ingest necessarily. Yeah. Um, Speaking of social media, I did have a question regarding mainstream media. Um, You know, we see substance use kind of almost, I would say, glorified in some celebrities or just seen in a lot of movies. Um, There's a lot of lyrics about it in in songs these days. How do you think that impacts um, healthcare from from your point of view as a a healthcare provider? how, How does the integration of substance use disorders into the media play into the exacerbation of these disorders and the rates that they're occurring at? That's a really, that's an excellent question and a a really interesting point that I don't think I've had much, much uh, time to think about before this, but, you know, I think it depends on how it's presented. I obviously, if, if substance use disorders are glorified or if, or if um, we're demonstrating that this is something that's that's okay, or we're still demonstrating that old punishment as a treatment system, then certainly we're portraying that in a negative energy towards the world. And we're, and we're further stigmatizing people who struggle with addiction, who say, boy, that's not how it feels to me. I don't feel like if I spend time in jail, that when I come out, I don't feel like using substances. In fact, it's, it's if anything worse when I get out, because now I have all of the negative associations and the traumas that have happened to me in this, in this punishment that I just underwent. However, I've seen some portrayals now of both addiction and substance use disorders that have been much more accurate and have really demonstrated the need for what you've described as multidisciplinary teams coming together to surround the person who's struggling with addiction, to offer resources, to offer compassionate, non-judgmental care. And that's where we're portraying it in a much more positive light to say, this isn't shameful to struggle with addiction, just like it's not shameful to struggle with diabetes or with heart disease. Instead, we really need to find the resources to help that individual to combat those things. And so I think that it depends on how we portray it, but hopefully that as we've delved into the opioid epidemic and that made national headlines during I think 2015 and and into 2016, when we had release of the CDC guidelines for opioid use, I think that that helps us to bring it more to a 
to a light of it's okay. It's not that you are at fault. It's not that you're a faulty person. It's that opioids are addicting. And yes, they do have their role in the treatment of pain, but we have to be cautious because they also carry risks in the short and the long term. And going off of that with the opioid crisis, uh, what do you think our best way to get out of it is at this point? That's a great question too. And I don't think I have an easy, <laughs> easy answer to that, if you will. But I think it's a, it's a multidisciplinary approach. And I think we have to use pretty much every resource we can, one, in an, in an effort of prevention to say, okay, before we start opioids, regardless of what the pain crisis is that we're starting it for, let's educate the prescribers let's educate those being prescribed too, because that's our best way to say, okay, yes, opioids do work for pain control in, in, in certain patients. And opioids are one of our tools when it comes to pain treatment modalities. But that's the key is that it's one of the tools, not the only tool. So we need to, again, educate those prescribing opioids because for a long time, it was the standard of care to treat pain with opioids. And I would say probably back in the 1990s, we had lots of endorsements about treating pain. The Joint Commission endorsed the fifth vital sign as being pain. We asked pain assessments on every single uh, vital sign assessment with patients. And really at that time, under treatment of pain was, was a punishable offense as well as the fact that at that time, medications like OxyContin were marketed as safe and non-addicting. And that's the confusing part of things is, okay, we were prescribing these medicines to get people out of pain, which is also an important goal. But then a lot of people ended up unable to come off of their opioids or with full-blown opioid addictions. Now, we start to realize that we have to be responsible prescribers. There's still a role for opioids, and we certainly want to treat pain. This isn't about going back to under treating pain, but we have to be, we have to be mindful in our approach of treating pain, knowing that we have behavioral modalities, we have non-medication modalities, we have uh, interventional modalities. We even have things like natural modalities, distraction, um, lots of different things with massage, acupuncture, things that can help manage pain that don't require opioid therapy. And educating educating our, our future clinicians and our future providers to say, look, you're going to be having these discussions with patients. Let's be upfront about those risks before we start opioid therapy. Now that leaves out the people that have been on opioids for years, if not decades. And those people cannot just be neglected. And we cannot cliff drop those patients off of opioids because that also has risk. That has risk of severe opioid withdrawal. It has risk of, of mental, emotional, and physical decompensation from stopping those opioids too quickly. So in that situation, we have to optimize the regimens slowly, maybe bring in different pain management, uh, multimodal pain medications to hit the pain receptors in different ways. And then possibly wean the opioids, but very slowly over time, understanding how physiologic dependence comes in with opioids and stopping them quickly isn't going to be a good option for those patients. That's, that's fascinating. Actually, um, it's, it's something that I think we, you know, we, we think is, we think there's a quick fix for, but ultimately, um, like you mentioned, uh, what I really liked uh, is that 
it really is going to be a generational approach, right? It could take uh, decades um, to really, you know, reform the, our education system, how we're training uh, future physicians, health professionals um, to, to prescribe in a different way. And, yeah. and, and with that, there's actually been a push even from our own medical school, but um, just nationally for medical students to do buprenorphine training in medical school and to start it so that when you get your DEA number, um, by the time you get your DEA number, you actually have the training necessity and necessary to do it, to provide it. That's amazing. And that, that right there is that shift, that generational shift that you're talking about, because even when I went to med school, which I feel like was not that long ago, <laughs> um, I didn't even know what buprenorphine was. I mean, I'm sure I had it in the pharmacy uh, sections and the pharmacology sections, but as far as practice with it, I didn't have my buprenorphine license until 2015, and I didn't have practice experience with it until 2015, and I graduated med school in 2008. So that speaks right there to we are getting the education out there. We are talking about these things, and, and it's important for us to know what those tools are. Buprenorphine is not a magical fix to people to treating opioid use disorder. It's a helpful tool, but I think it, uh, it also, it too has its risks. It also attaches to the opioid receptor still, and it has receptor activity, which can lead to problems with misuse. It can lead to problems with dependency or addiction. So we have to use even buprenorphine in the right setting and with the right tools with psychosocial support, with behavioral health counseling and things that really go into that. And, and that's one of the things I'll mention with addiction in general and with opioid use disorder too, is that there's really so much co-occurring trauma. And just my experience in dealing with patients who struggle with addiction, I believe that so much of it comes down to trauma whether it's tra trauma that's in childhood, uh, maybe even exposure to drugs, in, in early years, sometimes when they're very young or young adults, sometimes mental health problems that go undiagnosed or untreated and therefore causing a lot of negative effects. In fact, one of the things I've learned from patients is some people take drugs because of that euphoria, that feel good feeling like you're floating, like you have that thousand times dopamine surge of your favorite food or your favorite vacation. But many others instead find the utility of these substances, not in euphoria, but in dulling sadness or in dulling negativity or in trying to handle their own traumas from either childhood or adulthood, or I will add from their own stigma from having addiction, because it's this vicious cycle that if you have addiction and you try to seek support or help or treatment, but you instead feel more punished or you feel more stigmatized, or you go to the hospital and somebody says, well, you just need to stop using drugs and then you'll be fine. But those things don't, not only do they not help addiction, they actually throw you back into that spiral of stress, negativity, and trauma that then again might fuel the need for more substances because you're looking to dull that pain, to dull that negativity. Yeah, I mean, it, that dependency can be, can be so strong, right? It can... Uh, I mean, it can deeply affect, like like you mentioned, neurobiology, uh, and our biology dictates so much about us, and you know, there's so much that we don't understand about our own brains, uh, about how these pathways work. Um, that I mean, you know, this is something where there's going to need to be a ton more research, um, and you know, a ton more work um, to, really, to really find out what the what the best way for it is. Um, so I wanted to shift gears just a little bit um, to talk. Yeah, to actually talk a bit more about uh, like opioids, and 
you know, we've we've known how addictive uh, these substances are for for a long time, um, all the way back. You can trace it back to the opium wars, um, you know, back in the 1800s, right? Um, yes. The Chinese emperors, you know, they themselves got addicted um, to this. So, like, we we've known we've known, um, you know, the the dangers of uh, of these of these substances, and we also know the power of them. Um, to some extent, correct me if I'm mistaken, um, they can be the only game in town for some kinds of pain. Like, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of cancers like breast cancer, some breast, uh, breast cancers, bone cancers, prostate cancers, um, things like that. Um, and, you know, I've been wondering if there is research on the frontier right now, um, if, if it is always going to be like the only game in town, or if, if there is an alternative that's both safer and say equally as effective, if not more effective. That's a great question. And I, I wish I had the answer to that one too. I don't know if we're going to have something that's better or potentially more effective than opioids, but I will say opioids aren't necessarily the most effective for everybody. In fact, some people have a very negative feeling with opioids. Some people have sort of what I would call an addiction protective uh, type of a syndrome where they take an opioid and they are vomiting or they feel nauseated or they can't, they, yes, the pain is gone, but it's exchanged for these other side effects that are so unpleasant that the person really doesn't want to take opioids again, ever again. And so, and, and some patients do so well with combinations of different non-opioid agents like uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, maybe acetaminophen, uh, maybe using uh, some, some antidepressants that have activity against pain, sometimes even uh, medications like gabapentin or muscle relaxers or topical agents like lidocaine. So we have other agents that we can utilize. And I will say, Opioids aren't necessarily the only game in town because many people do well with regimens that don't include opioids. I will say you're absolutely correct that when pain becomes unbearable, sometimes opioids are the only medication that, that will be effective enough to treat certain types of pain with acute fractures or with cancer-related pains or other painful conditions. So I hope that there will be new uh, data and new opportunities for us in the future. And until then, I think we really have a due diligence to know that opioids are just one of many in our toolbox, even when we talk about pharmacologic options. But we also have options outside of the medications to help people with pain control, like distraction and physical medicine, uh, behavioral medicine. We really have to invoke our specialists because movement helps quite a bit and appropriately, of course, and, and certainly dealing with emotions and dealing with, with our, our mental health, because I think pain isn't just a physical manifestation. It really has, it's such a complicated process where it really is the mind and the body and the emotions and pain can be affected by, by things like finances or by going through a tough uh, personal journey or have going through a grief, the loss of someone or the loss of a job that really could exacerbate somebody's pain so exponentially. And really those things need multifaceted approaches for treatment. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and, and going back to what you had said about just, um, opioids not being the only option for pain. I've seen patients who respond best for tort to tortol better than opioids. Absolutely. It happens all Absolutely. 
Um, and then that's almost, exactly right. Yeah. Along with your other points is, you know, we owe so much gratitude to our social workers. They, they are phenomenal and they, they really, you know, when we don't have enough time sometimes to go into all the different facets of people's lives, they, they really, they take control and they, they help people in the minutia of their life, get back to some normalcy and get some little more stability than they might have now. Um, which yes, is- I, I really like that. And I think it, it brings such an important point that the more I practice in medicine, obviously the more humbled I am that, that we have so much more to explore, but really, if you take the time to listen, I know a lot of the time, I remember when I was in med school, I had these lists of things I had to ask. Well, if I'm asking about chest pain, I have to make sure I'm asking where it goes and does it radiate and what helps and and what worsens it and, and all of these things. And I'd be so hyper-focused on asking those questions. And then a lot of the time I'd get to social history and say, okay, well, do you smoke or drink? And do you use any drugs? Okay, well, that's it. And and that's not, you know, social history. Yes, it's important for us to ask about the chest pain. Absolutely. Because we need to identify what that acute problem is. But that acute problem might be coming from something in the emotional realm or something in the environmental realm. If, if I recently became homeless and don't even have a way to store my medications and don't have any way to even get to the clinic safely, then how would I be able to remotely be compliant? Or if I don't have access to medications or if I don't have access to a clinic, there's so many things that we have to consider. And, and we hate to just, just bubble it into the social history, but it really just comes down to to mind, body, and emotion. We have to ask all of those, all of those questions. What's affecting you? What's hurting you right now emotionally? What traumas do you have that you haven't been able to deal with? I'm not a behavioral health expert in any way, but but I do know that that life's traumas and environmental traumas and family traumas and professional traumas, those are all things that people live with every day. And without being a behavioral health specialist, I can say they undoubtedly affect their physical conditions. They affect why they're in the hospital. They affect why something is decompensating. Why was your autoimmune disease stable up until now? And all of a sudden you are having a gigantic flare. And when we start going into, well, what stresses you or what's hurting your heart right now? All of a sudden we get into things that, that, that really need to be dealt with on, like I said, a a multidisciplinary approach. Yeah, I'm, I couldn't agree more. Um, so Dr. Danko, we uh, would love to continue the conversation for honestly um, hours more, but we want to respect your time um, and just, you know, say thank you for uh, for joining us and, you know, really just taking the time out to, to share your expertise. This is such a valuable opportunity and I feel like we really got a, ch- a great chance uh, to shed some light on a matter that's underappreciated, you know, a matter that's really under uh, you know, under, undervalued, um, in our current conversation, you know, within medicine. Um, so yeah, uh, appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And thanks again for having me. And, and just one of the things that I'll, I'll say here in closing, cause I didn't say it in the beginning and probably should have is really the definition of addiction is it's a chronic relapsing brain disease that is characterized by ongoing pursuit of reward, whether that's social media, opioids, certain behaviors, whatever the drug might be, despite the negative consequences. 
So that is the definition. The definition is ongoing pursuit despite negative things happening. So when we see people who are stuck in that spiral of addiction, who have lost their jobs, lost association with their family members, potentially in and out of jail, it is not our, not only is it not our opportunity to judge, it is a falsehood to judge those people because that is by definition the the exact definition of addiction, that these people will have negative consequences with ongoing pursuit. And that's when we can really come in and start to provide compassionate treatment and, and compassionate care. Absolutely. And that's something that, you know, I would hope that, uh, you know, a lot of the new UNR grads are definitely going to come out, um, you know, uh, come out into practice knowing you know, it's just that um, these are people that um, are experiencing a medical condition, ultimately. And we absolutely treat them and uh, you know value them as human beings, right? Uh, That's exactly right. Not anything close to a a criminal, right? Drug dealer. That's exactly right. Quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Um, perfect. Well, um, I think that uh, that pretty much calls it a wrap for uh, for this podcast. So, thank you once again. And thank you so much. And thank you guys for getting the word out there about such an important topic. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you also. And this has been Medical Matters.